Hi, welcome to Shortflower's discussion around CMMC 2.0. Uh, my name is Craig Moores. Um, I'm responsible for Shortflower's risk advisory practice. Um, I'm joined today by Tom Cornelius. Tom, can I ask you to introduce yourself, please, and maybe share some of your background and experience for everyone? Sure. Good morning. My name is Tom Cornelius. I'm the senior partner at Compliance Forge, uh, also uh, founder of the Secure Controls Framework, and also help uh, run the CMMC Center of Awesomeness. Brilliant. Thanks, Tom. Um, so I guess for everybody, before we start, uh, it's important to note, you know, we don't have specifics um, around CMMC2 at the moment. Therefore, you know, we're going to try and keep our discussion um, sort of to a, a fairly generalized level. And so we won't focus on answering any specific contextualized questions. However, you know, you're welcome to reach out to uh, either Tom or I to discuss those um, further um, at a more convenient time. Um, our details will be posted um, a, a bit later on. Um, if you'd like a question answered, um, please post it in the chat for everyone to read. Um, you know, we'll get to those a bit later on towards the end of the discussion. So let's start with uh, the first of our six key topic areas. Um, so, Tom, you know, what is CMMC 2.0 first off? Sure. So, um, again, if you haven't taken the time to read it, I know Craig is going to post the, the actual link to the, the official uh, model page. You know, make a cup of coffee, read through it. It'll be good for you. But really, when you when you look at it, 2.0 takes CMMC back to uh, the basics of NIST 8171. This goes back to DFARS uh, 7012, uh, that clause that required compliance with 8171, you know, as of January 1st, 2018. So really, it's just hitting the reset button a little over four years ago. You know, we'll, we'll cover a little more of the, the nuances here. But one of the things that's not going to affect a lot of uh, contractors is the uh, 2.0 did add a little bit of an escape clause in for urgent DOD purchases where they'd be able to have a limited waiver process to exclude CMMC requirements on the front end of a contract for you know what are you know called mission critical requirements. You know, this would go all the way up to some senior level of the DOD leadership and also have a limited uh, time duration. So it wouldn't be completely avoiding the requirements. It would just be, you know, um, instead of front loading it before a contract is awarded, it would be you know, placed in probably, you know, during or after. Uh, and again, like everything with 2.0, it's all more information is, uh, you know, is forthcoming, but we don't know when that's going to be. Brilliant. Thanks, Tom. Um, I think that's pretty clearly articulated. But again, um, as Tom said, go away and have a read. Um, there are obviously some, some changes there that, that you, know, you should be aware of. And hopefully we're going to cover a few of those next. So I guess that's a good time, Tom, to come on to what some of the practical changes are um, that are associated with, with the release of the second version. What, what are some of those practical changes? Sure. And so right off the, the, the bat, and again, the, the DOD official website has some decent graphics that you know help paint that picture, but it drops the model from five different levels uh, to three, uh, where it essentially deletes out the old levels uh, two and four. So level one stays level one, which is really just the far basic cybersecurity requirements. Level two is um, the 110 CUI controls, uh, which was uh, the former level three. And the new level three is the old level five where the, the guidance on that so far is that instead of what the old model had for level five, it's level three is likely gonna look uh, like all of level two, which are the 110 CUI controls from 171, and then some mixture of controls uh, from NIST 800 to 172, which I believe is a, a catalog of 35 controls. So, you know, at worst, it would add an additional 35 controls, and those are gonna be, you know, the, the biggest DOD contractors. 
So it's, it's really not going to affect, you know, uh, affect much of the defense industrial base or the DIB at all. But when you kind of look at what excites most people about level two, or sorry, CMMC 2.0, is that it's removing some of the trouble points around CMMC, especially this concept of zero deficiency, you know, where that concept was, uh, it was always unattainable by the, by the DIB, uh, but at least CMMC 2.0 really acknowledges that. So there is going to be some type of uh, plan of action milestone uh, POAM uh, option for compensated controls. Again, more information that's uh, you know forthcoming. And with these changes, your your level one and some amount of level two um, organizations seeking certification OSCs are going to be able to perform a self assessment. And these higher risk uh, level two OSCs are going to have to still do a third party assessment, you know, through a commercial third party. These uh, C three PAOs. And then level three is reserved uh, for the DOD. Likely, uh, DIBCAC will will assess those. So, one of the from a, a pure risk management perspective, which should uh, make a lot of cybersecurity practitioners very happy, is this idea of a senior official, you know, within the OSC is going to have to sign off on annual um, uh, compliance attestations uh, in the uh, SPURS, the Supplier Performance Risk System. So it's going to take it away from like your cybersecurity, you know, manager or you know whoever's been you know doing the, the grunt work on CMMC, from them putting the information in spurs and that you know that low man on the totem pole being um, you know held liable. So it's taking the risk away from cybersecurity and putting it back where it needs to be on likely some type of VP from the line of business or it could be like SOX where you have the CIO, CISO, or CEO. Uh, signing off on, you know, as the senior official, where that's going to be a very contentious issue is that that brings personal liability uh, around it with False Claims Act potential violations. So I, I heard numerous issues with, uh, you know, people not wanting to put, you know, to submit their spurs for because they they really, you know, weren't very happy with it. But essentially, it was they do it or they get fired, and this is where. It's going to take a little bit of that ethical dilemma away where your cybersecurity team is going to be able to say, hey, great, this is what we feel the Spurs score is. If you, you know, if you want to say you're 110 out of 110 and we, we say you're 80 out of 110, you're the one who's going to uh, you know, attest to it. And you know, if you lie, then you know, good luck with uh, you know, uh, a possible FCA violation. And it was kind of interesting to see about a week before CMMC 2.0 came out, the Department of Justice, the, the DOJ, you know, uh, release a, a new program specifically around False Claims Act, uh, you know, where they're trying to revamp that to, they realize that third-party assessments prior are going to pull, uncover a lot of issues, but QUITAM, uh, you know, lawsuits or just other, um, you know, the, the threat of a False Claims Act might really be the best thing to cause these uh, defense contractors to actually do the right thing. So a little bit of a, you know, more of a stick than a carrot, but, uh, you know, anything essentially helps at this point with uh, CMMC. So I think there's quite a few pieces in there that are obviously quite relevant to people, but I guess, you know, maybe thinking a bit more on the consequence side of it. I mean, you know, can, can you explain how it might change tracking instances of non-compliance with the, the, the POAMs? Yeah, uh, that's going to be, uh, again, this is one of the, the biggest issues of frustration where uh, given a, a lack of lack of guidance, you know, since I think this came out in November, is that while it's fantastic that information came out on uh, that poems you know, will be acceptable, there's no specification about 
what controls you know will and will not be uh, able to be um, poemed, the duration of those, and you know any you know even the process for how do you actually submit it? You know what's the expected uh, time to review, and you know what format will you get back? Because if, if you go through an assessment and you don't have a, a quote unquote, you know, DOD CIO approved poem item, then that doesn't exist. Because if you go back to DFARS, DOD CIO is the only agency that's uh, essentially currently able to uh, grant a poem, um, you know, approval. So all that information still has to be defined by the DOD. And likely, uh, this is just, you know, discussion with, uh, with other peers. What's currently in the DOD assessment methodology, the the DAM, um, you know, for doing the the self-assessment for uh, SPURS, there are several uh, controls in there labeled as a a, a five-pointer, you know, where you can't have any any failure. So it's it's likely those will uh, be the ones that you can't, uh, you know, POAM. But still, this goes to the aspect of, you know, companies that from a segmentation perspective or from a... um, you know, from a tool that might simply not be able to be configured in a way to meet a control, you know, that would that would have failed everything under a, a zero defect, you know, uh, rule. This now gives them hope to be able to do true risk management. You know, it could be through compensated controls, through segmentation, or you know, enhanced monitoring, or or something along those lines, just as a company would do for PCI uh, compliance uh, with any type of compensated control. Hopefully they'll follow some type of you know rational uh, you know clear you know way to do it. But again, it's it's a, it's a wait and see at this point for poems. So, so I've got an associated question in that case. Then, so mm-hmm. um, obviously there's quite a lot of consequence attached to getting this wrong. So, how do organisations prepare for the overall management of, of CMS, CMMC too? Um, you know, we we discuss tooling a lot, but is this a good point for organisations to look at tooling a bit closer? Um, in order to support them and, and help them understand more around their, their kind of ongoing compliance. It, it really is. And this is where, you know, assumptions are, are really what you want to you want to avoid. And, you know, while it is possible to manage, uh, you know, a POEM uh, through an Excel spreadsheet, it, it's really, not, you know, a small person, you know, several person company could, you know, do that fine. But when you start looking at, you know, complex organizations, you know, multiple teams, um, you know, Excel doesn't cut it. And this is really where you, you need you know, some type of uh, GRC solution that can actually, you know, assign a control, you know, re- request evidence, request attestation, so that you actually have some type of uh, you know paper trail of you know uh, what work is outstanding, you know, who's done it, you know, where the evidence is, and that's the type of stuff that if you have good clear documentation, it, that makes any type of third party uh, you know audit or um, you know assessment much, much easier because, you know, it, you're really having clear evidence is more than half the battle when you, uh, when you're able to sit down with an auditor and share with them, you know, your, you know, evidence of policy standard procedures, you know, POAM items, or just if it's clear and they're able to, you know, dive into it, you know, one, since you're paying on an hourly basis, it makes it much more cost-effective, you know, to actually have the assessment. But then uh, for them, if they can actually see that you have your act together, it makes it much more pleasant because they realize you're not trying to uh, BS them throughout the entire process. And it, it, again, I, I'm an optimist where, you know, ideally people are going to go into it and generally, you know, feel, you know, yes, we've done our pre-assessments. We, we know we've got all the evidence that's necessary and then just be able to walk through and, and show an assessor. There will be people who try and BS their way through because they know they're not perfect and hopefully those will get caught. 
Yeah, it's a really good point because I think assurance here is is what auditors are looking for, isn't it? So the more you can show that consolidation of, of your kind of thought process and you know you're showing robust, repeatable processes, obviously you're demonstrating that that greater kind of in-depth knowledge of, of, of what you're looking at and ultimately how you're managing it. So I guess with that in mind, then whether, whether an organisation chooses to use a tooling associated tooling or a platform um, or, or Excel, you know, how do organizations prepare for self-assessment? You know, what should they expect? And this is where it's interesting. You've got quite a few tools that uh, still just focus on the 110 controls uh, versus uh, looking at, you know, down to the assessment objective, you know, uh, level, you know, which is uh, several hundred controls. And it seems a little bit overwhelming for you know different people, but when you're going through your your pre-assessment, you know, or even just your annual, like you you legitimately cannot answer your spurs for, you know, like putting that in if you're using the 110 CUI controls to be able to answer you know a, a self-assessment through spurs, you still have to go through and use the assessment objectives in 171 Alpha, uh, which are the same things that are in the uh, you know CMMC assessment guide. You know, it's the same material. So going through there and having answers to every AO is the only way to uh, properly prepare for, you know, either your own spurs for self-attestation or for a third-party assessment. So I guess to some degree, it's it's the same expectation as setting up for any audit. Then it's it's knowing that you've got that robust, repeatable process, supporting evidence, um, obviously, and then demonstrating that to, uh, to the auditor with a level of assurance, really, that you're you know, applying a, a pragmatic management structure around this to be able to demonstrate your compliance. Um, so I guess from a third party assessment perspective, then if we look at kind of a slightly different flavor of that, you know, what, what should organizations expect with third party assessments? Sure. And uh, this is where I do have my own opinions on this, but, you know, realistically, it should be, you know, a when you, when you look at evidence of due care and due diligence to identify, you know, are you, you know, doing what's right or are you, you know, being negligent with this? It really comes down to what a reasonable person in a you know similar situation would you know, would feel meets the the intent of the control. So that's how when you start answering your your assessment objectives and finding out you know do we have the appropriate level of evidence, you have to take that step back and say if we hired someone else or a third party came in here, would they find that reasonable or are you you know essentially just a little bit too much wishful thinking. So this is where I think uh, you really have to take that level of uh, of detail into it, because when you start looking at the third party assessments, I, I really do feel it's a little bit of a mixed bag. I've personally met some, you know, some very quality assessors who are going to become uh, C3PAOs, which is great. You know, some of these are former SOCs, you know, PCI, you know, you know, auditors. You know, so they they've been there, they've done that, they understand, you know, proper role, you know, uh, you know how an assessment is supposed to be you know, covered, you know, what appropriate evidence looks like and such. But there are quite a few uh, who have no backgrounds in audits or assessments, and they fundamentally don't understand the audit process or what evidence is. For example, I've met some that you know, they feel that they're going to be able to perform an assessment by just using the interview and test criteria from the assessment objectives and not use anything to examine, you know, which covers documentation. So this these kind of go back to the arguments of uh, when you look at 800-171, some people feel that you know you just have to do the controlled unclassified information controls and not the non-federal organization controls, which are essentially documentation. But when you look at the assessment objectives, 
everything in there from examine, you know, covers, you know, policies, procedures, and other associated documentation. And it's really sad to see some of these third-party uh, assessors are saying, oh, well, it, it doesn't say I have to use all of these. I can just pick and choose. And some are saying, you know, I don't even have to look at look at evidence. I can just interview and observe, which is, uh, it, it's sad. And that goes to the, the level of the uh, assessor, which is going to mean that some of these third-party assessments are going to be a joke, uh, which brings in another issue of if you have a, a third-party uh, assessment that is is weak or you know the contractor feels that the maybe they don't like the results of the C3PO how is the CMMC AB actually going to you know deal with any type of uh, challenge and at this point it's questionable how much oversight you know the AB is going to have on you know insurance assessments or, or quality products so Ultimately, the, the CMMC AB is supposed to be reporting these results to the DOD, and it's only going to be time will tell if, uh, if that process works or not. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, you know, coming from a kind of audit-based background and several kind of audit qualifications myself, I think one of the things that, that we always struggle with is consistency in audit approach and, uh, you know, demonstrating that there's a reasonable level of assurance that underpins the results that come out of these um, individual audits. So. I think you know you picked up on one of the areas there, which is probably the one that I see the most, um, which is around evidence. So, you know, what can people expect for evidence requirements for CMMC two? Um, I mean, you, you just alluded to it there, but I mean, what what would you suggest um, in your experiences to be expected for those evidential requirements? Sure, and this is what's kind of funny in, in some ways is that you know there, if you you know for the people who are familiar with uh, you know version one to you know version two. People are saying, great, we don't have to do any of this other, you know, documentation stuff, you know, from the, you know, the, the processes. And when you really look at it, the evidence doesn't change. You know, companies still have to have their policy standards, procedures, SSP, you know, incident response, all these other kind of things that, you know, are needed to demonstrate, you know, evidence of, uh, you know, due diligence and due care. So uh, there is no like removal of, you know, of documentation or evidence required. So this is really where it kind of goes back to that, that aspect of make that pot of coffee, block off time on the calendar and really read through 171 alpha, you know, or, you know, pick the CMMC assessment guide and look at what that actually means. You know, when it's saying, do you have this, you know, do you have this documentation, you know, yes, no. And you have to really, you know, answer it honestly. And it goes back to that reasonable person's perspective. If a reasonable person you know, would come in and say, if you're talking about how you're going to manage, you know, an in, like incidents as a whole, and you don't have an incident response plan, from a reasonable person's perspective, they're saying it's like, well, yeah, you're really not doing that. You know, you would be doing it in an ad hoc manner that would just be, you know, fly by the seat of your pants, which really doesn't meet the intent of the control. So if you if you find that you're kind of like shrugging your shoulders a little bit and saying like, uh, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't meet the intent of the control err on the side of safety and say it doesn't meet the intent. And that's when you really need to document, you know, specifically to your organization, what do you do? If you're a five-person organization and you're wearing all the hats, well, your incident response procedures are going to be relatively, you know, basic. But if you're a 10,000-person organization with, you know, an entire team dedicated to incident response, you know, where you've got an expectation for a certain level of maturity, you know, then your documentation uh, should be, you know, much more robust and, and mature. 
So look at it from a, a reasonable person's perspective, because at the end of the day, you know, if you ever had a false claims act violation, you know, uh, brought against you, then you've got to, you know, defend yourself, you know, in court or you know to a you know deposition. That's really what's going to come down to from a reasonable perspective, based on our company size and our level of maturity and what we're doing. You know, A, B, C, D was sufficient. You know, at that time, and that's really how it needs to be uh, viewed. Yeah, and that's really good advice. Thanks, Tom. And um, so I've got a side question related to that around uh, sure. something that I see quite a lot now around um, unified control frameworks and continuous control monitoring. How, how do you think? Um, you know, how do you think CMMC will fit? With organizations that are looking at consolidating um, you know, their controls down into a unified controls framework and, and looking at measuring those over a longer period of time, what, what potential impact might CMMC to have you know, positive or negative on that? It, it really comes down to evidence, you know, of the, you know, assigning the control, you know, is it, you know, did are they meeting the intent of the uh, assessment objective? And this is where any type of internal audit or pre-assessments are really going to matter. When you really kind of you know chop up what CMMC is, there is quite a bit that is you know uh, on the technical team, but you know you do have you say you know personnel security HR, you know you've got procurement, you know you've got all these other you know non-technical teams involved that do have controls that are going to be you know assigned to them. So someone does need to you know be the you know cat herder and go and actually make sure that the appropriate evidence exists. So, you know, using something like the secure controls framework or UCF or other, you know, um, meta framework, uh, you know, control sets, they can be great. And that's especially useful when you're looking at uh, possibly having, you know, multiple compliance obligations, you know, or one control that can be used against multiple different statutory, regulatory, or contractual obligations. That's great, but also it always comes down to the evidence. You know, do you have the evidence uh, to meet the, uh, the the AO? Thanks, Tom. Um, I think there were some really great points through there. Um, you know, and thanks for sharing your knowledge on them as well. Um, I think obviously, you know, when more information comes out, uh, obviously, if, you, if, if anyone does have any follow-on questions, you're more than happy to to, to reach out, Tom or I, as I well, said earlier. One thing on there, and one one thing that we're we're seeing is that uh, there, since you, you have a CMMC with the DOD is, you know, an immediate need for a lot of companies and, you know, where they're saying, Hey, we have to, you know, we have to do this or we're not going to you know get a contract, uh, but they still have other compliance obligations that they've put on the back burner. So once they get a handle on CMMC, they're going to start looking at these meta frameworks and saying, okay, great. How can I roll up, you know, what I'm doing for CMMC to address, you know, GDPR, CCPA, PCI, all these other, you know, different things. And that's where the meta frameworks will be, you know, useful. But again, it's 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 evolving and maturing, um, you know, their compliance obligation, like how they're governing that. Yes, great point. Thanks, thanks for adding that, Tom. Okay, so I think hopefully everybody took something valuable from 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 that. Thanks to Tom. You know, I, I have had a quick look. There aren't any specific questions um, raised by anybody. So if you do have a question you want to ask um, of Tom or myself, please do post it into the chat now. Um, you can also, uh, obviously, uh, I think I saw our LinkedIn details um, in there as well. Feel free to, to come and connect with us. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, please drop us a, a message if you do have something more specific that you want to talk about. Tom, have you got anything else you want to add at this point? Uh, no, on this, again, it's, it's wait and see. I mean, it's great to go read through you know, the link that's going to be shared. It, it's really important to read source material yourself. 
And, you know, just don't, don't take my word for it or stuff you read off of LinkedIn. You know, it, it really behooves you to go and, you know, read the source material. Excellent. Thanks, Tom. Uh, thank you for your time today um, and to everybody that's joined. Um, we hope to see you all again soon. And as I say, if you do have any questions for us afterwards, um, please do connect with us um, and, and feel free to ask those. Um, otherwise, uh, we hope to see you at one of our sessions in the future. Thank you all and have a good afternoon or day wherever you are.